0: To Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three. I was noticing not a lot of you stand during the first few songs and, and I'm not criticizing you for that, but, um, but I, I, I was just thinking to myself as a matter of pragmatism, uh, and, and the relative comfort of these chairs, uh, I've, I've made a covenant with my backside, not to sit in them too long. Um, the, uh, much like Job in his eyes there. Um, anyway, all right. Um, turn to Romans chapter three, start in verse 21, Romans chapter three, starting in verse 21. put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning. And as we look into your text and we understand how it is that you can be just, righteous, a good judge, and be one who declares righteous sinners. Uh, how you can do both of those things, Lord. How you can declare us as sinners to be righteous and at the same time be just. Um, Lord, I pray that we would understand how you resolved that dilemma in the person of Jesus Christ through the sacrifice that he's made. Lord, help us to understand this great doctrine of propitiation Lord. what it provides for us. A word that is so foreign, Lord, that none of us use in regular vocabulary, Lord, but a word that is so rich in meaning. A word that resolves the problem that exists between you and us. Lord, help us to understand it and to love it to want to hear your gospel proclaimed in our sight, in our hearing over and over again for your son's sake. Amen. Well, when I introduced the book of Romans back last September um, and if you're new, you, it gives you an idea of the pattern here (laughs) last September, uh, not the September we just had the one before um, I talked about how this letter of Paul has had a profound impact in the history of the church. In fact, um, it had a profound impact in the life of St. Augustine. That's one of the people I talked about. It also had a profound impact in the light of Mart, uh, life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther being one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. It was used to greatly impact Christianity, frankly, throughout the centuries, and especially since the Protestant Reformation. This letter was taught by Robert Haldane. I don't know if many of you have heard of him, but he was a guy who became very wealthy, uh, via family inheritance was so wealthy that he decided to donate or spend all of his time studying and teaching the Bible to other young men, raised up many young men and brought a great revival in Europe. That's post-reformation as a result of the work that he was doing and actually funded much of the church planting that happened as a result of that. Um, personally was also used in the life of two other great men and, and not just this letter, but the specific verse we're honing in on today. Romans 325, it was used in the life of two other great men. Um, You may have heard of at least one of the two. You may have heard of both. One is named John Bunyan and the other is named William Cooper. John Bunyan, best known for writing one of the best-selling fiction uh, books ever, The Pilgrim's Progress. Have you guys read that before? I recommend if you have not that you read it. It's an incredibly good book. But he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. He came to faith while reading this verse in Romans. In fact, he, uh, speaking of his conversion um, in grace abounding the chief of sinners, he wrote another book called Grace Abounding the Chief of Sinners. Speaking of his conversion, he said this. As I was walking up and down in the house, as a man in a most woeful state, the word of God took hold of my heart. He then quoted Romans 325, which says this. Whom God put forward, speaking of Christ Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. He read that, and then he stated this: "Oh, what a turn it made upon me! I was as one awakened out of some, out of some troublesome dream." William Cooper. Um, another young man who was changed really by uh, reading Romans 325 actually happened right around when he was 25 or 26 years old. He was one of these guys who was greatly troubled. He was kind of an, he was an orphan. He ended up becoming extremely depressed, str- struggled with depression his whole life, um, got to the point where he tried to commit suicide at least twice. So they finally put him in an insane asylum. They put him in an insane asylum at the age of 25 years old. And he was there attended to by a Christian doctrine, a doctor. And uh, it it says this of him. The doctor says this of him. It is said that Cooper used to be so burdened by his sin and the wrath of God do him that he would yell out my sin, my sin. Oh, for some fountain open for my cleansing. He would just yell that out. He was so burdened by it. It was upon first reading Romans 325 that William Cooper said this immediately i received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the son of righteousness shone upon me i saw the sufficiency of the tone, atonement he had made my pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification in a moment i believed and received the gospel he was utterly transformed and he penned a song that I'll read at the end called there is a fountain filled with blood. He's crying out for this fountain to cleanse him. And he wrote a song called there's a fountain filled with blood. What Cooper, William Cooper and John Bunyan both understood was that their sin was overwhelming and that it had offended a holy and righteous God. They both understood that they understood that they deserved his wrath. They could see no hope. They were hopeless. They could think of nothing that could remove the wretchedness of the sin from their lives. They knew where they were defiled and they were not sure how they could ever be made clean. They could not be clean. They knew this. They could not be clean unless somehow God's righteous wrath was satisfied. God's holiness had to be vindicated for them to be made clean. They understood that for them to have any hope. And that's where Romans three 25 gave them such great hope because it announces this word whom God put forward as a propitiation. Why, why does it give them such hope to hear that? Because that term or that word propitiation By his blood, that phrase resolves a great dilemma. It answers the question to a great dilemma. How can God justify men? We're sinful. How can he declare us righteous and at the same time be a holy and righteous God? How can he do that? Because if he is a holy and righteous and just God, how can he let sin go unpunished? He cannot. If he lets sin go unpunished, he would be unrighteous. And so they knew he must punish their sin. So, how could they ever be justified or declared righteous, saved? How could that ever happen? You know how? Propitiation. This term we're going to talk about, that's the solution. And they understood that. Propitiation is how God can be just. And justify the ungodly. Today, I want to look at this concept. And I know the word might seem foreign, right? How many of you guys usually use propitiation in your general conversation, right? How many of you guys have heard of propitiation? You guys even heard of the term? Some of you have. It's not often used. In fact, preachers often avoid terms like propitiation. Why do they avoid terms like propitiation? I don't know. Maybe it's because they don't understand it. Or maybe it's because they're afraid that. The average folk can't take it. I'll tell you, honestly, the Bible has been given for the average folk, hasn't it? And the Bible uses the word propitiation. And it's incumbent upon me as a pastor to teach you what that word means, what that's about. So first I want to answer the question, what is propitiation? And then I want to provide three truths of biblical propitiation. I want to answer the question, what is propitiation? And then I want to provide you three truths about it. Okay. So what is propitiation? It's a term that means this, the satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what it means. Simply propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. It refers to the vindication of the holiness of God through divine justice being exercised on the offending party. When you're a sinner. If God condemns you to hell, his wrath is propitiated. It's satisfied on you. And the condition that we're in is we are people who are sinners. And God's wrath needs to be propitiated against us. And so we all deserve what? Hell. In fact, we are all in reality headed toward hell in our natural state because God's wrath must be propitiated, must be satisfied. Some of your Bible versions, and I hope you don't have one that says this, may say, may use the word in Romans 325, may say whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood. Uh, that's really uh, not a good translation. It's not a good translation. The word expiation, Christ does expiate our sin, we'll, and we'll talk about that. But this phrase here, this Greek word that's being used here, is the word for propitiation, not expiation. Second, the concept of expiation doesn't even begin to resolve the problem Paul's addressing here. You might say, okay, Chad, that's, that's really helpful. What does that even mean? Right? Expiation means cleansing or removal of guilt, forgiveness. Okay, so this is expiation. You're cleansed, you're removed of guilt, you're forgiven. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. So when I talk about propitiation or when Paul's talking about propitiation, he's saying that God's wrath has been satisfied. In other words, we're sinners whom God cannot relate to apart from exercising his wrath justly upon us. And so God resolves that problem by crushing his son, by propitiating his wrath against his son, Jesus on the cross. So God can now relate to us propitiation. Does that make sense? He can now forgive us. He can now extend his grace to us. Okay. His mercy to us. Expiation is what happens as a result of that. As a result of the fact that God's wrath has been satisfied. He can now forgive us. He can now cleanse us. And now we can relate to him. Does that make sense? Propitiation. So he can relate to us. Expiation. So we can relate to him. This phrase here is talking about propitiation. Expiation is good and it's part of the work of Christ. But it does not solve the problem of how God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Because if God just expiated our sin, if he just cleansed us, forgave us. If if that's all he did, would he be just? No, he wouldn't be a just God he would have just forgiven sin and he would now be unrighteous. If we only had expiation, the gospel, then we'd be forgiven and God would be unrighteous because he never punished sin. God's wrath needs, needs to be propitiated for him to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Let me give you a picture of the difference between these two concepts. I want to give you guys a picture of it. Okay. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16. This is one of those books that probably just falls open when you open your Bible, right? Cause you're in it so much Leviticus chapter 16. It's being talked about in Leviticus chapter 16 is the day of atonement. So, you know, once a year, once a year in Israel, they would all gather together in Jerusalem for the day of atonement. Okay, the day which their sin would be atoned for in which God's wrath would be propitiated and they would be expiated. They would be made clean. Okay. And this is a picture of that starting verse five. We'll start there. And he speaking of Aaron or the priest shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now listen to what he does with these two male goats. Aaron shall offer the bull. And then you say the bull, what's this for? This is an offering for himself. Offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats. He's made atonement for himself so he can enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for the Lord. What do you think that's talking about? Propitiation. One lot for the Lord, propitiation, and one lot for the other for Azazel. You know what that means? Scapegoat. Talking about expiation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So that he does not die. He's got to go through all this just so he can enter without dying. What is he talking about? Entering where? In the tabernacle, there was a holy place and there was the holy of holies. And there was a veil that separated them. You could not go through that veil. You could not go through there without your sin being atoned for. Because if you went through there in a state of sinfulness, what would happen to you? The glory of the Lord, the holiness of God would literally kill you. You would die. They would actually tie a rope to the guy's feet. One of his legs, so that if he got killed, they could drag him out without going in themselves. But he would go in, and inside that holy of holies, they had an ark. The ark that they carried. And it not not like Indiana Jones, right, okay? <laughs> kind of looks the same, I suppose, but they they would inside the ark they had the Ten Commandments, that's where the law was. On top of the ark was a gold plate thing called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat were two cherubs and they were, their wings were outstretched. What do the cherubs stand for? The holiness of God. And they're looking down at the law of God and the mercy seat. And here's the picture. We violated the the law of God. We have therefore become unholy. We cannot enter his presence unless the mercy seat covers us, right? And what has to be put on the mercy seat? Blood. Blood has to be spread there to cover our sins so that we can enter the presence of God. And that's the picture that's given here. So let's go on and read what it says. Verse 14, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. This is propitiation, satisfying God's wrath kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of the meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made in an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So what's he done? He's made atonement for the holy place. The dwelling of God has been atoned for. God's wrath has now been propitiated. That's a picture of that. Then what does he do? Now he goes before the people, and he takes the second goat. Verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So here's the picture. On the day of atonement, all the congregation of Israel gathers. The priest comes in. Takes off his royal priestly garments. Beautiful royal priestly garments. Puts on the clothes of a servant. Walks through the town essentially. And all the people follow him in. Takes a sacrifice. Makes a sacrifice for himself. Goes inside. Does this whole thing so that now he's prepared. Comes out. Gets one goat from the people. Transfers their sin onto that goat essentially takes it in, slaughters it, puts its blood on the mercy seat. God's wrath has now been satisfied. Then as soon as he's done with that, he goes out, takes another goat, transfers her sin onto it. And the people watch while one man walks that goat away. And they watch until that goat has walked so far away that they can no longer see their sin. Because their sin has been removed from them as far as the East is, from the West. They've been made clean. They've been forgiven. Now Jesus comes, the great high priest, as a servant, doesn't he? And as he comes, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus doesn't have to make atonement for himself because he's perfect. He's the perfect great high priest and he's a servant and he goes and he is not only the priest who presents the lamb. He is himself the lamb. He is himself the sacrifice. He is himself the one who propitiates God's wrath and expiates or washes us clean by his blood. All of that that was done in the old Testament was given Just so we had a picture of what was coming in the Messiah. In the Christ. None of that ultimately even atoned for their sin. Do you know that? None of it. That stuff did not atone for their sin. It did not propitiate or expiate their sin. It just pictured the coming propitiation and expiation that would happen in Christ. Look what it says in Romans 325. Go back there. Romans 325. Speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. The sins of the past, the Old Testament saints had been passed over. They hadn't been propitiated or satisfied. They were passed over. Do you know when the sins of Old Testament saints were propitiated and expiated at the cross? They were, looking forward in they were looking forward in faith to that day. But until that day, we have a great dilemma in Paul's mind. God's been passing over sin. God's been passing over sin. If he does not propitiate his wrath, he's unjust. And so Paul understands that what Christ did on the cross was the resolution to that problem for them and for us. So, when we talk about propitiation, we talk about God's wrath being satisfied so he can relate to us with grace and mercy. So he can relate to us with grace and mercy. That's what we talk about. You want to know another, one little interesting fact? In the Old Testament, the word for mercy seat in the Hebrew was translated into a Greek text called the LXX of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was, trans, was, was translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. Uh, a little over a hundred years before Christ was born. It was the Bible that most of these guys were using the Greek Septuagint. What's interesting is in the Greek Septuagint, that word mercy seat is the same Greek word propitiation. Same Greek word. In other words, he mercy seated us. He propitiated the wrath for us. So when we talk about expiation, we talk about being, when we talk about expiation, we talk about us being made clean so we can relate to God. When we talk about propitiation, we talk about him being satisfied so he can relate to us. God is definitely propitiated in the crucifixion of Jesus, and our sin is definitely expiated in the crucifixion of Jesus. But Paul primarily here is talking about how we are what? We are able to stand before God because his wrath has been propitiated in Christ. We're talking about it. How is it that sinners can be justified? How can sinners be declared righteous? Do you see the dilemma there? How is it they can be forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight? It happens through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In order to shore up propitiation more, I want to give you three truths about it. Okay, here's the first one. God requires Propitiation. God requires propitiation. The very nature of God requires that his wrath be satisfied. Very nature of God requires that his wrath be satisfied. You know, most people, today will say, well, you know, God isn't wrathful and angry. God's love. God forgives sinners. That's true. But he's also wrathful and angry. The reason most people say this is that they don't think that God's character that God's character requires that sin be punished. They don't want to believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is in the Bible. Ultimately, they reject the idea of God's wrath as natural to God's character. They don't really believe that his holiness requires all this. Here's why. In part, I think because they think of God's wrath as being like ours. They think it's capricious and just kind of flying off the handle rage, right? Like God sees a sin and just flies off the handle. It's going to crush people, but it's nothing like wrath in us. Nothing like wrath in us. God's wrath is, uh, is far different from ours. Pulls apart from our kind of wrath. Here's what wrath looks like in us. Um, we're generally provoked to wrath when people do what? Offend us, right? When they offend our vanity in some way, I'll, I'll give you an example. Sometimes Teresa and I sin against each other. My wife and I I don't know about the rest of you who are married. That probably doesn't happen to you, but occasionally Teresa and I sin against each other and our wrath is provoked because our vanity is offended, not because sin was committed. See, that's different, isn't it? I don't have wrath evoked in me because I'm so abhorred by her sin. And wh- how that offends God and how she needs to be reconciled to God. I have wrath evoked in me because I'm abhorred by her sin and how it affects me. Right. My mom was reading the paper on Friday. I have to pick on your mom. She calls me up in the morning. She keeps reading all these editorials about me, which I keep telling her, don't read those. Right. And she became angry and felt wrath. Um, She threw the paper away, I think. I think I had to get her to get it out, um, the trash. But I'm sure she was provoked in part for some good reasons. But I'm also sure that her wrath was probably not completely holy wrath. She probably wasn't thinking, gee, these people, you know, I'd like to get to know them and take them to coffee and share the love of Jesus with them. (laughs) Right? (laughs) As parents, we sometimes get provoked by our children's disobedience, don't we? Get provoked by our children's disobedience. Disobedience, but not because we're concerned about their sin. Generally, that's not the issue. I mean, that may be part of it, but oftentimes we get provoked by our children's disobedience because we're angry that they embarrassed us. Happens, doesn't it? That's not the kind of wrath that God exhibits. And if it was, then I would agree God does not have wrath in his character. But that's not the kind of wrath that God exhibits. So what is the kind of wrath he exhibits? John Stott says this. There is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the Holy God, nor is he ever irascible, malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational like ours often is. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable because it is provoked by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger injured vanity never provokes his and what provokes his anger. Evil seldom provokes ours. See, Paul understands that God is righteous and must exercise wrath against sin or else he's unjust. John Piper said it this way. God's righteousness is at stake. His name or reputation or honor must be vindicated before the cross can be for our sake. It must be for God's sake. Paul clearly states this in Romans 3, 25, 26. Listen to what he says. Why does God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood? Listen to what it says. This was to show what God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he'd pass over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is the most basic problem that Christ's death was meant to solve? You want to know what it is? Is it our sin? The most basic problem that Christ's death was meant to solve is the problem that God seems to be unrighteous. Because he passed over all that those Old Testament believers sins. And he's going to forgive other people. Why? Why did God seem to be unrighteous? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What it says right there in the text. And he is the justifier of the one who has faith. That makes him seem unrighteous. How can he pass over sins and declare righteous those who are guilty? Would this not be an infringement of his own holy and righteous character? Doesn't his justice require that his holiness be vindicated? Listen to what Psalm one hundred three ten says. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, God has been forgiving or passing over thousands of sins. I'm talking about the time of Paul now. Thousands of sins for thousands of years. He's been letting them go and not punishing them. He's just been forgiving the most heinous sins of those who believe. How can that be? Isn't that a travesty of justice? See, to the average person in our world today, and unfortunately, even to many Christians, this really isn't a dilemma, is it? That God could just forgive and not punish. Doesn't seem like much of a dilemma, does it? Paul understands, though, that God cannot be just and overlook sin. He understands that God cannot be, cannot just pass over thousands of sins and forgive people without the very character of God being shown to be unrighteous. Why? Because what's at stake in sin is God's glory. Hear that? What's at stake in sin is God's glory. When we sin, God's glory has been denied. What does it say in Romans 3, 23? For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. You want to know how that's a present tense verb? Are falling short of the glory of God, and what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God Romans one twenty one Paul says this: for although they knew God, they did not honor him or glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchange the glory of God for other things. That's what sin is. We fail to give God glory. You see, the ultimate reason it does not seem like a problem to us for God to just overlook sin, to pass by and forgive it, to not punish it, is because we do not look at sin, justice, and righteousness from the perspective of our creator. Do we? We look at it from our own perspective. It doesn't seem so bad. But, you know, our creator has rights, too, doesn't he? He has the right to be glorified. And every time we sin, we fail to extend to him that right. The glory of God has been mistreated, and his righteous response to that is to exercise wrath. In fact, Romans one eighteen through 3.20 is all about how God is going to exercise his wrath against sin, isn't it? Starting in 1.18, for the wrath of God has been revealed, right? Okay, Romans 2.5, they're storing up God's wrath against themselves all the way through 3.20. Yet we have to deal with a very troubling reality. How can it be if God must punish those who violate his glory that men are declared righteous and are forgiven? Even more, how can it be that for thousands of years he passed over sin and declared sinners righteous? Is God not really a truth teller when he says that if you sin, you must die? If God is just going to pass over former sins and justify the ungodly, then really God agrees that his glory isn't infinitely valuable, right? We can reject his glory doesn't mind it all that much. In other words, God is ultimately unrighteous because he does not care about justice. He's unjust. I mean, that would have to be the conclusion. And Paul understands that dilemma. Ultimately, if God takes his own glory seriously, if he considers his own glory of infinite value, and he does, he does, then he must punish forever those who sin and exchange his glory for the glory of another. He must. He could settle it all at once. He could right, and just condemn us all to hell eternally, and then he would be just, would he not? Yes, he would. His holiness and his wrath would be vindicated, right? But God, see, this is the great part of the Bible. But God, because of his great love. You see, he also desired to justify men. God wants to save, he wants to forgive and declare men righteous. Thus, God planned. Propitiation—that's the second thing. Not only does God's character require propitiation; God's God planned propitiation, whom God put forward. See that says Romans three twenty-five, whom God put forward. Who put forward Christ as a propitiation? God did. We often speak as if Jesus is the loving one who came to you know change the wrathful and angry father's mind. Do you guys ever think of it that way? Honestly, Jesus is kind of the loving one. He came to change this wrathful, angry dad's mind. People do. And this causes us to approach Jesus and pray to Jesus and be a bit standoffish when it comes to the father. Right? He's the, but we don't understand. He's the one who lovingly planned to create us. The father did. The Father is the one who lovingly planned to sustain us. And he's the one who lovingly planned to send his son to save us from our sins. It was God out of his great love for us who planned all this and sent his son to accomplish it. John Stott said this, if it is God's wrath that needs to be propitiated, it is God's love that does the propitiating. God did not have to pour out his wrath on Jesus in order to love us, he poured out his wrath on Jesus because he loves us. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, not Jesus. Jesus does yes. This is talking most specifically about the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans five eight. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We should be amazed, absolutely amazed, by the magnificence of God's love for his people. Amazed by it. Let me give you an example of how exalted the love of God is. Some of you, this has happened so to some of you. This example I'm going to give has happened. So you know how you deal with it. Some of you, it has not. Think of your spouse had an affair. Your Spouse has an affair. What sort of anger would this cause? What sort of hurt and betrayal would you feel? What would your response most likely be? You might abandon the marriage. It's one thing you might do: It's abandon the marriage. You might stick with the marriage, but continually guilt the spouse who committed adultery. Often happens. You would at least respond with some anger, tears, angry words, etc, right? At least. You might even get to the point where you extend forgiveness and move forward in the relationship. I guarantee, however, that the moment your spouse comes to you and says, I had an affair with so-and-so, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I guarantee in that moment, you will not look lovingly at them and say, I love you and I forgive you. And now you might say the first part, next part. And now I want to have a party because you've returned to me. You might say, I love you and forgive you. You'll probably then make them earn some trust back. You'll probably communicate that they only get your acceptance as they approve themselves worthy through future fidelity. You'll probably not say, I accept you and trust you. Now let us continue in our marriage with the confidence that no matter what you do, you are accepted by me. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? That's the kind of love we experience in the gospel. It's the love that says that you are my beloved. I'll take your sins upon myself. See, the father's love for us is promiscuous. It's love that pursues the beloved, though she is a whore. I'll be punished in your stead. That's the kind of love it is. And I'll cover you with new clean clothes. I'll put a ring on your finger and make you my own. I will throw a banquet for you. I will give you all things. While God loves us greatly, and he does love us greatly that much. Doesn't mean he can just overlook our sin. He was not unjust. He not only wants to be the savior, but he also wants to demonstrate that he is just. And you see this dilemma. So Paul sees both of these things. God must be propitiated. But God loves us so greatly, he wants to forgive us. So how does that resolve? It's resolved according to verse, or chapter 3, verse 26, or verse 25, by Propitiation. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So, the third point is this God accomplished the propitiation. God accomplished the propitiation. See, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood. It was not provided by man. Our sin is so heinous because the nature of God against whom we have committed it is infinitely holy. There's nothing we can do to atone for it. Nothing we can do to atone for it. We can't pay back our debt. We can't satisfy God's infinite wrath against our sin, but we try, don't we? We try to offer him our good works, our good parenting, our tithes and offerings, Our service, our morality, our avoidance of rated R movies, our avoidance of drinking a beer, whatever it is, we try to offer something to God so he'll accept us back in our spiritual adultery. We are like a adulterous husband who's constantly having affairs and bringing home some flowers as if that makes up for it. But God tells us clearly what is required is just recompense for our spiritual adultery. You know what it is? spiritual and physical death. So if this is the case, then how can God justify us? How can he then declare us righteous and still be just? He did so by putting forth Jesus as a propitiation. Jesus death on the cross, the shedding of his blood satisfied God's justice. God's holiness was vindicated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice to which everything in the old Testament pointed forward. People in the old Testament were saved by the be- death of Jesus. Just like we are. They look forward to it. We look back on it. It's the only difference. Well, that's the primary difference. Not the only one. I mean, we got the spirit at Pentecost in a way that they didn't. And I don't have time to go on all that, but the primary difference in salvation is that they looked forward to their coming salvation in Christ. And he pa- God passed over their sins until it was atoned for at the cross. And in our case, it's already been atoned for. We look back on it in faith. This is how Paul can go from Romans three 20, where he says this for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's how he can go from that to Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And you guys see this, we are doomed because of our sin, we're facing God's righteous wrath. But now. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified what, as, by grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this is was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So glorious that paragraph is. Earlier, I referred to the William Cooper's song, great song that he wrote. And now that you have a better understanding of propitiation, God's wrath being satisfied, and the expiation that comes from it are being cleansed and forgiven. At the cross, I want to read his song. Here's the man who cried out again and again from the insane asylum: My sin, my sin, oh for a fountain that fountain that would cleanse me. After he read Romans 3:25. He was radically converted and he wrote this. There is a fountain. Hear that? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I as vile as he washed all my sins away. Ere since by faith I say the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that your redeeming love, love that moved you to put forward your own son, as a propitiation by his blood. To satisfy your righteous wrath. To vindicate your holiness. Lord, a love that you put forward for us. So that through that you might cleanse us and forgive us. And that you might be restored to us and we might be restored to you. Lord, what a glorious love that is that you extended to us in Christ. We don't deserve any of it. Lord, we are so thankful that you have done it. Lord, that you planned it. Lord, that you accomplished it. It wasn't done by us at all. We're thankful to you for that. And we pray, Lord, that that redeeming love would be what we sing and what we speak of until we die. In Jesus' name, amen.